All right, good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here, and it's great to be with you. I love Thanksgiving week coming up, so I hope you've got good plans and that it's a good week for you. So I just love this holiday. I just love it. Can't get any more basic, right, than give thanks. Like, what a great thing to do at least once a year, just to slow down and just think about how good God has been to you. So I'm a very grateful man this morning. I am so thankful uh, to Jesus for what he has done for me in my life. Uh, through the years that I've known him and his help for me. Uh, very thankful for Lori, my wife, who's here, an amazing teammate and friend. Um, great blessing to me. My kids are here this hour, too. So, guys, you very thankful for you. You're a blessing to me and uh, this church as well. Just the uh, opportunity to be a pastor, the people I get to work with on our staff team, our elders, Rachel and the women's ministry team, uh, just so many leaders here, and then the people of this church, uh, by far the best thing about this church. So very thankful, very uh, grateful man here this morning talking to you. So um, it's a great privilege uh, to be with you. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of First Peter. So we are wrapping up our series on the DNA, the traits of a disciple. We've been using uh, the, this topic all this fall. Uh, and last week, I talked a little bit about my dad, who has worked with soybeans for a long time, at least 50 years of his life, okay? And we talked last week about the amazing, uh, such a small bean, looks kind of like, kind of insignificant, but uh, people like my dad who do research on soybeans and can put different traits into these beans, it's just astonishing uh, what, can, what each little bean can contain, right? So... Uh, he's got varieties that he's done research on. They're growing all over the country, growing in China, Argentina, Chile, Turkey, Italy, uh, Kazakhstan, like all these different places. And what's really cool is that there are different traits that he can uh, put into these beans, like so uh, to be tolerant to cold or heat, disease resistance, yield, high yield, those kind of things. There was an interesting one I just remembered this week because I used this analogy last week, but um, there was a lot of his varieties are used for animal feed, and um, this is very random, so get ready for this. But there was a dog food company that was really interested in kind of the protein value as beans, but there was one other trait they really appreciated is that there was a certain trait that they could put into the feed that would cause dogs to have less flatulence. So, and if you don't know what that means, look it up, and you heard it first in a church, but, but as more and more people live in urban areas and small spaces and apartments, but they still want dogs, uh, dogs can sometimes do their best to kind of foul up a whole room, right? And so, and so actually, that was a trait. They asked my dad, could you put more of those kind of traits in your beans? So, very random, all right? So maybe the next time you drive by a field, you could say, I wonder if those are some of those low flatulent dog beans over there, so whatever. So, but it is amazing. And so the connection we've made there, though actually there is a significant connection, is uh, the gospel is like a seed in that you maybe just, uh, in so many times, the movement of God can just be overlooked. Like it looks so small. It looks so insignificant. But you see what God has done throughout history is that when that seed is planted in the right context and, and embraced by, by hearts that are ready, uh, the gospel can do amazing things. Uh, even this week, just hearing some stories about 10-ish years ago, uh, there was a woman who was really at kind of one of the lowest points in her life. And when meeting with one of the pastors here, uh, began to understand the gospel and she embraced the gospel and it has changed her life, her marriage, her family, and then even in the last couple of weeks, she has had the opportunity to point 
other people to the hope that she has found in the gospel. That's a really cool story. There's another developing story around here. Um, six, eight months ago or so, uh, we met a couple that both of them were just very honest in their first Sunday here. It's like, do you help people find God here? Yes. Uh, do you help people that want to get married get married here? Yes. You know, just like very basic, innocent, asking questions. As we got to know them, they both just amazing people, but both have, under, have been experiencing the depth of addiction. Like the, the hardcore drug addiction is basically both almost wiped out both of their lives. And he was able to start breaking free. And as he was breaking free, he saw this woman still in the throes of the pit. And so he was saying to her, come on, you got to get out of this. And as he was helping pull her out, as she was coming, coming out, she said, you know what? I don't know if we can do this alone. And I kind of remember this church party that I kind of went to a long time ago. Maybe we should go back there because I, I think to get out of this, we're going to need God's help. And for the last six or eight months, just heroically, courageously battling with the power of the gospel, these addictions, now married, forging a new marriage together in a group with some of you guys, studying the Bible, you're praying for them, meeting with some people in our soul care ministry here, but just seeing victory in their lives. So like those kind of things, like as a pastor, that's some of my things that I'm the most grateful for. I feel like I'm 50 yard line seat of just watching what the gospel can do in different people's lives. And so, and so that's what we've been after this fall. Like what are the traits? Like what does God want to do in our lives through the gospel? And what does God want to do through us corporately as a church? And I love that little video where we sketched out. Like, I think the people that started this whole movement back in Coralville in the 1930s, like 15 of them just reading the Bible together, had no idea what could come when a group of people just gathered around the scripture, would have no idea of the thousands of people that would be impacted because of what they were doing, or the people around this world that would be influenced for the gospel because of what they were doing, or the thousands of University of Iowa students reached with the gospel, or to see a, a school set up for kids that um, have, have a lot of challenges facing them, but yet giving them the opportunity to have a Christ-centered education, like all these things they would have never dreamed of. But that really says, uh, you know, there's been some faithful people along the way building those things, but bottom line, that says a lot about the power of the gospel. And so we wanna be a church you know, our vision is, is that we want to be a church where Jesus transforms lives, where he renews a city, and where he impacts the world. And that's going to happen through the seed of the gospel. And so the traits we've been looking at this fall are things like this, that as the gospel produces fruit in our lives, we will be a people that enjoy God's presence, will be worshipers, will be a people that live God's story, that's live out the scripture. So we'll be students of this book, will be um, a, a group of people who love God's people. As we experience God's love, we share that love with each other. And so we don't go to church. We are the church. We're the family of God. And this should be a place where, as we are loved by God, we love each other. So we love God's people. We share God's gifts. So we are stewards with what God has given us, like so many have been so faithful to do, so we can see the things uh, that, that have happened. But people just realize these are not my resources. They're God's. So they've been stewards. And then serving God's world as, world as servants and missionaries, that we are sent to this city. We are sent to our schools, to our neighborhoods, to serve our city and to point our city to Jesus. And so what we're going to look at today from Peter, and if you kind of get confused of who Peter is, Peter was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and he was probably what you would consider the leader of the disciples. And what he's going to teach us today from his letter, 1 Peter, 
uh, is uh, what are the heart qualities, what are the heart conditions that, that God looks for, for, for a heart that can take the gospel and produce the traits that we would love to see, okay? So as God looks through the room this morning, I mean, he kind of maybe likes what some of us are wearing and maybe kind of what we look like, but his number one concern is our hearts, what's going on in our heart. And so, so Peter is going to point us to three qualities this morning that God is looking for. Do we have hungry hearts? Do we have humble hearts? And do we have hope-filled hearts? So let me pray, and then we'll jump into uh, this, this message and let Peter talk to our hearts today. So, so Father, yeah, I pray that these next few minutes you would use your word to just open up our hearts. That is where your eyes are this morning. That's what you care most about. You, you long for us to be a people who, who are devoted to you with our whole hearts. And, and you can see what's really going on in our lives as you look right at our hearts. So would you speak to your people today? Would you, would you create in us hearts that hunger for you, hearts that are humble before you, and hearts that are just filled with the hope that you give us in Jesus? In your great name we pray, amen. All right, so we're going to hop to three different places in 1 Peter this morning. The first place we're going to start is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And he says this, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Okay, just a quick summary. If you remember from last week, Peter is writing this letter to followers of Jesus who are in this time on the run. They are being persecuted. He identified them as exiles that are so persecuted right now that they have had to uproot and literally live on the run. So to encourage these people, one of his messages is that even in the midst of such hardship and suffering, make sure that you are hungry for pure spiritual milk. And you go, what's he talking about, pure spiritual milk? Well, if you go back a couple verses, you will see what, what Peter is talking about is he is talking about the word of God. Peter had a, just a really high view of the word of God. Let me just show you a couple things he said in the previous verses. He, he reminded these people that they have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. And so he says this, this is a great statement. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the grass. So that's us, all people, all that we can do, we're like grass, okay? And he says this, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So Peter is saying, guys, make sure you are craving and hungry for what is going to last, like what is really going to help you, what is really good for your soul. Because he says, realize it or not, what your soul is craving right now is a word from God, like is hope from God, a message from God, truth about who God is. That is something that you are not going to find in this world. And anything that we feed our souls with besides the word of God might satisfy for a little bit, but bottom line, it will come and go. It will fade. But what we need to build our lives on, what there needs to be a craving for is the word of God. You say, well, what, is, what does Peter mean by the word of God? And Peter, again, had just a front row seat to the life of Jesus. Like he understands what the message from God is, that God is for us, that God saw us in our sin and our need, and he sent Jesus to meet our need. Jesus died for us 
gives us new life, and that is the gospel message. And so what our souls crave is to understand the love of God. And Peter says, when that starts to happen in you, did you see what that does to the relationships around us? That we're able to love each other earnestly, that we're able to remove deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, that when our souls are fed with what they're truly craving for, man, it just opens up our eyes to how much God loves us, and it totally changes our relationships with each other. And so the analogy there is, is to crave the Bible, crave God's word, just like a baby craves milk, okay? So if you have been around a new baby recently, you will know that when that baby is hungry, the baby does not go, um, excuse me, uh, mom and dad, like, thank you for taking care of my diapers and all the hard work you do for me. And just, I know you're really busy and I keep you up a lot at night and all that. So, but when you get around to it, when it's convenient for you, could you just give me a little bit to eat here, right? That's not how the little babies operate, right? When they're hungry, everybody knows. Like, and it is like relentless, it's loud, it doesn't stop until that baby is fed, right? Peter's saying, guys, that's what your souls are doing right now. Your souls are screaming and crying. And he's saying, watch out, because you're going to try to fill that soul. You're going to try to do different things and just kind of put it in there and satisfy yourself. But bottom line, your soul is craving for a word from God. Moses uh, said this to God's people in Deuteronomy 32. He said this, Take to heart all the words that I have solemnly declared to you this day. They are not just idle words. They are your life. It was amazing. I was reading about Moses and God's people, and in Psalm 78, it said this, that, that God's people, and this is so us, it's not just history people, this is us, like that God's people saw God open the Red Sea and lead them across. Pretty cool, right? So he, the, God's people saw him lead them with a cloud during the day, the pillar of fire at night. They saw God feed them with bread from the sky, he brought birds literally from hundreds of miles away to come and just die in their presence so they would have meat. And he brought water out of a rock. And guess what it said God's people did? They forgot. <laughs> they, they forgot like that wasn't enough. And Peter is saying, guys, you need, your souls are really craving for the word of God. Feed your souls with what is true and what they're really crying out for. These words are your life. It's just not something you're kind of interested in. It's not just history lesson. Like our souls need the word of God. So if that is true, if that is true, please no guilt bunkering right now. Okay, just, let's just talk straight up. Like if this is true, like what would you expect to see our lives to look like? If, if, if God's words are really what our souls are screaming for, wouldn't, wouldn't you think if, if that was true and we knew it, that there would be regular times in our day where we could say we've intentionally just set aside time so we could read the truth. Like, what does God want to say to us? That's what our soul is craving, right? So um, we would do that, I think, right? We would read if we had questions. We would look for answers. Guys, we are <laughs> the most blessed people that ever walked this planet right now with Bibles available to us, answers to Bible questions available to us on our phones, on the internet, our computers, like everywhere we turn. So I think we would see that in our schedule if we really believed this, our souls are craving this book, or we would ask questions, or if we didn't know how to study this book, we would ask. Guys, I'm in a season right now where there's people doing that. They are so hungry, so aware of their need for God. They're just saying, could you just show me how? 
Guys, you could do that too. Like if you're not sure how, just ask some people around you. You know, read the Bible, just learn from them. How do you, how do you learn God's Bible? How do you get it into your, your life? So um, I think we'd be doing that. I think if we really saw this word was important, we'd get some people around us to make sure we're understanding it and would make sure that we're doing it. So that's what we do in community groups. That's what we do in different groups that meet and study God's word that for you to do it by yourself, eh, you know? But if you really wanted to make sure you were doing this, I think you'd get yourself around some other people that are doing it so they could help you make sure you're putting this book to practice. So I um, told you last week that a couple weeks ago I went to, a, again, a memorial service of an incredibly fruitful man who died way too early, but yet his life spoke very clearly through this service. And each of his kids, uh, this man was in his early 50s, and God had been doing amazing things in his life. And each of his kids got up and spoke about his life. And uh, guys, one of the things that nailed me was this. One of his daughters talked about the four seasons and what they reminded him her of, of her dad. And Summer reminded like the play that he used to take time off and they would do things together as a family. So he remembered that season and winter represented uh, with this man's career, he was gone like different long stretches. Sometimes they wouldn't see him for a while. That's what winter was. But guys, listen to this. Spring to her reminded her of her dad's life the five or 10 years or so before he died. That spring represented new life. And as fruitful and faithful as this man was, like growing, growing, going, you know, through so many years, there was something new and fresh that she saw in him just in the last five or 10 years. And you guys, what a great wake-up call. Like, let's be honest this morning. Anybody here think you're done? Like, you've totally arrived. Like, there's nothing else that can be done. Like, God, you, God, you must be so proud. Look what you've done. No, I don't think there's anybody here. Like, wouldn't it be beautiful for the people closest to you five years from now to describe, wow, you know, great person before and good friend before, but man, those last five years, just saw God do some amazing new and fresh things. I, I felt called up by that man in many ways. And so one of the rhythms they described about him was that there was a renewed passion for this book, that he was getting up early and reading it, and that he and a group of men were meeting in a coffee shop and just digging and asking questions and going through this book. And don't don't miss for a second that there's a vital link there, that there was a new hunger for this book in this man's life. And it was so evident that even one of his daughters could say, man, there was some cool stuff going on in my dad's life. That's, that's what this book does. That's what your soul is screaming for. And so I just encourage you, like wherever you are on the zero to 10 <laughs> spectrum of reading this book and understanding this book and digging in, like let's, let's just bump this up, okay? And here's a couple of practical things. Just ask God, God, would you give me a hunger for your word? Like, just be honest. Sometimes it's drudgery. It's a, it's a, I just got, it's a routine. Just, God, would you break this out so that really reading your word comes alive for me, that really you would feed my soul as I, as I interact with your word, okay? Just start with that. And then, and then just start asking for help. Ask people to teach you how they read the Bible, okay? So, so let's be a people who are hungry, all right? It's the first one. Second one is humble, okay? So flip over a couple pages to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 to 7. So hungry, the second one is humble. Peter says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Guys, it's interesting. It just flat out says God opposes the proud. It doesn't say God's patient with the proud or God tolerates or sympathizes with the proud. He hates the proud. He hates pride. Proverbs 8.13 just flat out says God says, I hate pride. You go, whoa, God, calm down a little bit. Like, why, why do you hate pride? And guys, the reason God hates pride is pride is the anti-God statement that we all make, that we don't need God, that God is irrelevant, that I can do this life on my own. I don't really need him. And what's dangerous about that is that God loves us too much to let anyone or anything else be in that number one spot of supremacy. Like, he alone is God. He alone sits in that spot and deserves in that spot, right? And he alone is the one that, when he is in that spot, can sufficiently meet the needs of everybody else that is number two on down, right? So, but when any of us or anything or any person just tries to knock God off that spot and put themselves or itself there, you have a war going on. God will not let that happen. This world craters when he is not seen as the ruler. Like God says he's a jealous God. It's not that he's petty or that he's worried and insecure about his position. He just knows when he is not number one, things do not go well for the people in this world that he loves so deeply. So he doesn't mess around with pride, okay? And so, in fact, that verb tense is a continual one where it says God opposes the proud. It's constant. Like, it's not every Monday he opposes the proud. Like, it's every second of every day he will oppose the proud, okay? So, and that doesn't go well. For whoever the proud is versus God, God versus, you thought Iowa, Illinois was a crush yesterday? That was ugly in a good way for us. But um, it's even like, no, it's like think bug versus windshield. Like, it's God versus us is no, no contest. And so, I wonder if there are times in our lives where we are trying to be God and play God that life seems so hard and like, oh, I'm so drained. I'm so like, could be that we're just pushing against God and that just does not go. So God says that he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. John Stott is a British, uh, a British pastor, theologian, that uh, had this statement about our growth and our battle with pride. He said this, in every step of our Christian growth and maturity, our greatest enemy is pride, but our greatest ally is humility. So what can I do daily that will weaken my greatest enemy and strengthen my greatest friend? So I don't know if you uh, are aware that your soul is battling pride, So I wonder if there aren't some specific things then we build into our lives to make sure, like Stott said, we are empowering our greatest friend, which is humility. Let me me just throw a couple things out there. What if there are regular times in your week where you stop and just think about the cross? Maybe it's through songs you sing. Maybe it's through just looking at some scripture. But when you I think it's impossible to be humble. I mean, I'm sorry. It's impossible to be proud when you're standing at the foot of the cross, okay? Because the cross makes a powerfully brutal statement about us, that we are so broken and sinful that the only remedy for us was that the sinless son of God had to die on a cross for us, all right? You can't stand at that foot of the cross and stick your chest out and say, like, that will humble you. But the amazing thing about the gospel, too, is that it also lifts you back up because you're humbled by your sin, but you also realize that the sinless Son of God 
went to that cross because you were so valuable to him. He loved you that much that with joy, he suffered for you on the cross, all right? I call that a godly swagger then. Like you, you walk in confidence, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. So you go humble because you realize who you are and what you've done, what Jesus did, had to go to the cross for. But you are so loved, valued by him, that he died for you. And so, so just regularly look at the cross. Okay, we're talking about things that will just feed humility in your life. Let me give you another one. How about giving thanks how about giving thanks? It's coming up, right? Thanksgiving, like, could there be some time in your week this week where you just break free and just make a list? Like, how has God been good to you? Just write those things down or wherever you record those kind of things. I've talked to you guys before about my notebooks or my moleskins now where I read the Bible. I try to every day and just make notes or prayers in here. Like, you'll see just pages here of what I'm thankful for. God, this is what you've done for me. Like, so an ungrateful uh, person is a proud person. But the more you understand that what you have is not what you deserve, but it was given to you, that keeps you humble. So be a grateful person. Work in times where you just regularly write down things that you're grateful for. I've mentioned this before, but Psalm 136 is a great example it's where we saw, you saw it on the Thanksgiving offering. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And then the rest of the psalm gives a statement of something God did. And then it says his love endures forever. Another statement, and then his love endures forever. So maybe write your own Psalm 136 this week where you just write down thing after thing that God has done for you. So you give thanks. Um, even just the practice of spiritual disciplines, praying, reading your Bible, like all those are a statement to you and the people around you that you don't have this life. Like you can't just wing it, that you are pausing from your schedule, you're pausing from your to-do list, and you're praying. You're pausing and you're reading the Bible. You're setting aside time and you're getting in community with other people. Those are all expressions to God that you can't do this on your own. You're going humble uh, before God with the spiritual disciplines. It's a good thing. How about this one? First uh, Peter 5, 7 said, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. At first you say, okay, he was just talking about pride, and now he's talking about casting your anxieties. What's the deal here? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when you are anxious or afraid, you are exhibiting pride. You're exhibiting pride. Because the reason we're anxious is that we are starting to play God again. Like we have to know all the future stuff or we have to be able to figure this out right now. We have to know and have the power to make all things work together for good. And those are all things that only God can do. So when we are afraid or worried, I think Peter's telling us right here, look, when you're anxious, just cast our anxieties on him because he cares for you. Like he's the one that can work them out. He's the one that cares about you. He's the one that knows what's going on. So stop worrying. Like that's just an act of pride. Oh, I got this. I got to figure this out. God say, stop wasting your time. Like just give those anxieties to me, okay? So regular times where you're just giving them out. I call them in my book, those are my cry outs. Prayer, one of the words for prayer in the Hebrew language just meant to cry out. It's like, what are the things that you just can't do anything about? You just cry them out. You just give them out to God, all right? So cast your cares on him. And the last one is to be an encourager. Like, train yourself to look at the people around you, people in your classes, people in your dorm floor, people at work, people in your neighborhood, hardest people in your family, and just spot things they're doing well. 
And be the one to notice that. Be the one to bring that up and encourage people for what's going on. That just fights our desire to be the front and the center. Everybody knows me. It's just like, no, flip that around and you be the one that is the encourager. So, so Peter's urging us to have hearts that are hungry, hearts that are humble. And then the last one we're gonna talk about is hearts that are hope-filled, okay? Hungry, humble, and hope-filled. Sometimes when we use the word hope, it's more of like a wish. Like, I hope the weather's nice on Thanksgiving. That's a wish. When the Bible talks about hope, it means a confidence, something that is sure and something we can trust in. And so we live in a world actually today where um, one of the saddest things that I deal with as a pastor is when you step into someone's life and you see that they have absolutely lost hope. Like there's nothing more discouraging. And we are in a culture, in a country today, where this is, it seems, growing more and more prevalent. Even though we have so much, even though there's so much advancement in education and technology, you can pretty much slice up any demographic in our country today. And battles with discouragement, depression, suicide seem to be trending up. And the reality is this, uh, in this world that's cursed and, and fallen, corrupted by sin, we're not gonna find hope. And we're gonna find maybe little spurts of our lives where there's something we can put our trust in and get excited about, but eventually that's gonna fade or it's get outdated or it's gonna be taken away or it's gonna be gone. And we go, what's next? And so I think people are just learning quicker that, you know what, the stuff we're trusting in here just, just isn't, isn't satisfying. Like this isn't what our souls are really craving. We have more and more stuff, but, but more and more discouragement and, and, and depression. So uh, Peter is saying there is a living hope. And so look at 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. And if Peter, we talked a little bit about this last week, if Peter were to sit down and have a cup of coffee with you at Starbucks or Java House this week, and he'd say, okay, what What's, what's, what's your big challenge going on? Like, what, what's, what's robbing you of your hope and joy right now? And guys, there's some le- legitimate things we could put out there that we're all battling and we're struggling with. And I think Peter would be really compassionate. I think he would listen for a while, nod his head. But he'd say, let me, let me tell you some stories about what it was like to try to follow Jesus. And, and the people I was writing this book to, this letter to, let me just tell you about some of their stories. And the persecution and the hardship and the literally running for their lives with their family because of their stand with Jesus. And he'd look us in the eye and he'd say, but you know what? We lived with hope. Like we didn't, we didn't back down. We, we lived because we had a hope that this world couldn't understand. And so look at it, verse, verses three and five verse, in chapter one. Peter said this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. See, Peter had a hope that this world didn't offer. And what's amazing about Peter's hope there that he just described that we can all have in Christ too, is it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. You could describe the most horrendous situation going on with verses one to three to five. There is still hope. 
like for any one of us, because our hope is not bound in this life. Our hope is kept for us in heaven. We have a living hope that transcends this world. So we are never without hope if our faith is in Jesus Christ, okay? So uh, again, this was a theme throughout his book. Peter was writing to people who are suffering, and there's a couple of times where he said, well, suffer, we don't suffer for doing stupid things. We don't suffer for being morons. We deserve that, right? And so he's not talking about that kind of suffering, but he's talking about suffering that just hit you because you're following Jesus or suffering that hits you because you live in a fallen world. He says, you can experience a hope that this world uh, does, not, does not even offer. And so Peter would be, if I would think of all the disciples and all the people that walked with Jesus, I think hope was like, Peter's banner, because just think about it. If you don't know his story, let me, let me fill you in a little bit. Peter was just a fisherman. He met Jesus. Jesus said, come follow me. Jesus kind of placed him in leadership over this whole team. Uh, Peter got to do some cool stuff. One time Jesus said to Peter, in a stormy sea, come out of that boat and just walk on the water to me. Like, Peter got to walk on water. He got to see Jesus do all these things. And then Jesus, things were ramping up, and Jesus was going to Jerusalem, big city at that time, Peter's thought was, Jesus is going to set up a kingdom, and he is so powerful, he's strong, he's going to take over the Romans, and guess who's going to be number two in that kingdom, you know? He's thinking a lot of those thoughts, man, it's going to be awesome, me and Jesus doing all this, and so then they get to Jerusalem, and Jesus is arrested, he's tortured, and then he's slaughtered on a Roman cross. Boom, game over. And then you add to that, Peter who was supposed to be this strong leader right when Jesus was arrested and Peter said, oh, Jesus, if everybody else runs out on you, I'll be there for you. Peter denied that he even knew Jesus three different times, an epic fail. And so you talk about three dark days when Jesus was dead and Peter's just in despair. He's, all of his hopes are gone. His closest friend ever, never been loved by anyone who had been loved by Jesus, is dead. And you add to all that that his big epic fail is the last thing that he will be remembered for in his relationship with Jesus. Like dark, dark days. Till that first Easter when there was a rumor that the body of Jesus was gone. Like the, the instant he heard that, if you know Peter, he didn't like sit around. He wasn't kind of a wait for things to happen guy. Like as soon as he heard that, he just started sprinting to the tomb. He had to see, and unfortunately, his friend John beat him there. Maybe he's a little chunky or a little slow, whatever was going on. But, but John was on the outside looking in. Peter just blasted into that tomb and said, is it true? Is it real? And it, it was his savior, his friend. Jesus had conquered death. And the other big question was, okay, I just had my big epic fail. Is he going to forgive me? Is he going to take me back? Is he going to restore me? And that first night when he saw Jesus in person, and Jesus said, peace be with you. And a few days later, when Jesus reinstated him as the leader, wow, Peter said, you know what? My hope is in this one who defeated death, he defeated sin, and he loved me when I was at my worst. He forgave me, he showed me mercy. Man, that's where my hope is right now. And so if you trace Peter's life post-resurrection of Jesus, his favorite topic was the resurrection. You couldn't shut him up. It was like a Cub fan talking about 2016. We've heard, yes, we know. Yes, they won the World Series. Thank you, we know. Okay, so it was worse than that. Like, it was just constant, like, resurrection, 
Jesus is alive. He's our living hope. Like, you couldn't shut the man up. In fact, he lived through such suffering to get the gospel out. He was so passionate because his hope wasn't in how people are going to respond to him or if it's going to be easy for him or good. His hope was in this risen Christ. And so, again, across the table from us, Java House, wherever we are, he would just look us in the eye and say, you have a living hope in Jesus Christ. And whatever it is that you're struggling with right now, whatever it is that's draining you of your hope, man, just take your eyes off of that and put your eyes on Jesus. He loves you, forgives you. He's risen from the dead. He is alive. He is your hope. And the other thing Peter says to us is, so here's something you gotta be ready for. If you start living like that in a world like this, people are gonna ask, okay? First Peter 3.15, he said this, but in your hearts, Honor Christ as Lord, as holy. Always prepare to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And do that with gentleness and respect. Because you will stand out. This world does not have hope. Especially those of you that are walking through the darkest or hardest times. When you're still living with hope. When you're still living courageously and for others and not yourself. People are going to just scratch their heads and go, where are you getting at? Where are you? And so that's a chance for you to put uh, your hope on display, all right? And so what are your challenges this morning? Like, what is it that's robbing your hope or sucking your hope uh, from you? Again, just lay that beside the, the hope that you have in Christ and let Jesus speak straight to that. So, um, so again, I'm just thankful for what God is doing in our lives. And I just want to give you hope and encouragement this morning that wherever you are on, you know, are you still trying to figure out this Jesus stuff or you've been walking with him for a while? Guys, this seed planted in your heart can bear amazing fruit, okay? If we're hungry, if we're humble, and if we're hope-filled, look out for what God wants to do in your life. And then for us collectively, like we are in a huge season of just trusting God like to take us from one church in one location to be one church in three locations. This whole thing we're, we're stepping out to do financially, uh, I wonder how it compares to the people in Coralville back in the day that saw the vision, you know, to take the commitments and the risk that they did to, to put up this place and how this place has served as a hub for the gospel for many years. I just wonder how that equates to today, the big things that are before us, uh, helping fund a school that is doing amazing things in the lives of, of, of kids who've been really maybe struggling in the past, but we're seeing good fruit there. Or uh, to see the opportunity to purchase uh, the L like we have on the east side, where now we have a permanent home for Faith Academy in the east campus. And there's even a sustainability piece to that model, if you haven't caught that yet, that as owners of that building, there's, there's revenue that can be generated from the, the properties that we're leasing out that as soon as that building is paid off for, guys, it is amazing what resources could be poured right back into Faith Academy, into Parkview. There's a sustainability to that property model that is, that's awesome. So not just, we don't just love the location or what could happen out of there, but that, 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 that piece of sustainability is really strategic. And then up in the North Campus, you guys, I don't know how much you're aware of that. We have almost knocked out the mortgage payment there for that property. So again, to have a movement of the gospel like 50, 60, 70 people from here have gone up to help start that in the midst of North Liberty, where there's a ton of kids. I don't know how many of you guys know about part two of that 
facility, what's used during the week is that there's a really healthy daycare there that in the last few months, uh, Pastor Josh up there has really injected uh, a beautiful curriculum where the kids are being trained about the gospel. And that, that curriculum is going back to homes as well. And so, so again, there's a, you know, you think of North Liberty, you think of kids, you think about our property there also being a place where, where children are being poured into, kids are being reached. And again, there's a sustainability piece too as far as partnering with that facility and the revenue that comes again to continue to sustain what God is doing. It really is, uh, it's a courageous step what the church is doing. And I appreciate the elders and leaders that just spent a long time seeking, God, what are you calling us to do? So it's a huge challenge. And I just encourage you to be in prayer that, that by this time next year, at least, that God has met all those needs, that God has abundantly blessed what we're by faith stepping out and asking him to do. But all of this is within the parameters of what God can do with the gospel. We've seen him do it as a movement. My, my prayer is we see him do that in our lives personally and then my hope is we see him do that corporately. God keeps using uh, this church to bless this city and to bless the nations. So let me lead us in a time of prayer and give you a chance to pray and respond as we wrap this up. But um, first, let me, let's just, as a group of people, ask God to give us a hunger for his word, a, new, a renewed, fresh hunger to hear from him that there would be a season of spring in our lives as God brings new life through his word. Pray for a hunger for his word. And could you pray that we would be a humble people, we would be a people that sees who God really is and that we would humble ourselves before him. We would cry out to him with our needs and our anxieties. We would be a people eager to serve each other as we humble ourselves before God. We'd be humble. And let's ask him to live as a people who are filled with hope. So whatever it is, our greatest challenge is right now, just even right now, God invites us to just lay that right beside the hope that he offers us in Christ. And so could you do that right now? What is it that's draining your hope? What have you given up hope for? And let God speak into that, that in Christ, he gives us a living hope.